This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Wikimedia Foundation, well, Wikimedia actually, and perhaps Brewster have similar visions, which ours is that every person share in the sum of all human knowledge, and yours, according to what I've read, is providing universal access to all knowledge. Was that true at the start of your career? Yeah. um, So I'm a geek, um, and there was this question a friend of mine put to me in college, said, okay, you're, you're a geek, you know, I guess we called it nerds or hackers or something like that at the time. I said, yes. And he said, you're a utopianist. Or, uh, and I said, yep. He said, try to paint a por- positive portrait of how the world will be better placed because of your technology. This turned out to be a really hard question to answer. And I, I recommend sort of trying to ask sort of something like that. It's just like, okay, what, what's a positive? It's really easy to complain. I don't know, we were complaining about Nicaragua or El Salvador and, you know, I don't know, nuclear weapons and, and, and things like that. Um, but it was harder to go and say, well, how could we actually make things, you know, better? And I could only come up with two answers. One that I thought was kind of too obvious so, it, so somebody else would do it so I didn't have to bother. And the other struck me as, as something really worth doing, which was trying to protect people's privacy. Uh, this is 1980, um, and trying to make it so that people wouldn't just throw away their privacy um, in this sort of oncoming in digital age. So I thought that was worth, worth trying to do, so I went off to try to do that. I wanted to make chips that would encrypt what people said on the phone. Um, so I went and learned chips to try to do this. Um, and um, I found that I couldn't make it cheap enough to help the common man, because I figured people wouldn't actually pay for it. They, they, they wouldn't pay for privacy. In fact, they'd probably do what they could to not have it. Um, so you had to make it there anyway. So I figured it had to be sort of built into every um, answering machine and every sort of uh, phone, because 1980 was early. And I could, found I couldn't do it, so I went to plan B which was the build the universal library. Could we build the Library of Alexandria version two? Which I just thought was gonna to be too obvious so other people would do it. And, but so I said, all right, why don't I just try to do that? And it's now, I don't know, 37 years later and we still haven't gotten there. Um, but well, People it's, have packaged up and thrown away their privacy on a massive scale. Yeah, I was scale. right. You were right. Yeah, um, and the only way to try to make it so we actually do use privacy is to sort of build it into everything we do. So by default, everything is end-to-end encrypted. Um, and we can do that actually now. Um, the big companies and the government won't like it very much, but uh, we, can, we, can, uh, we can get that done. But the Library of Alexandria version two, can we make all the published works of humankind permanently available to anybody that wants to have access to it? Can we do that? The answer is absolutely. When we did out the math, even back then, 
of sort of how much storage would cost and when would we get to having all of the books in the Library of Congress and we could put a date. Then when would we be able to have all the music ever recorded? We had a date. And when would we be able to have all the films ever done? We had a date. And so I said, okay, that, that looks like fun. That seems like a really good project to work on. And, uh, but we were pretty far away from how, even having computers that worked well enough to, to handle this. Um, just to give you, you know, the sort of, you know, way back when, life sucked. Um, a, a supercomputer that I helped design um, cost $5 million and had 32 megabytes of RAM. Yeah, and, uh, and then we built this special um, um, disk drive. It was the size kind of of, of that whole thing. And it, was, um, <clears throat> and it was actually curved like that. It was really cool, it's called a data vault. And it, it held five gigabytes of data. And it, it, was, it, it used RAID before RAID was, was, was coined yet um, to be able to make all these hard drives to be able to be five gigabytes. That's $5 million. Um, but it allowed us to see the future. It allowed us to play. Um, with things that were really, really fast. So you could go and search all the texts that you could find from all the magazines and newspapers and put it in and be able to find patterns within it. Um, and that was really terrific. Um, and I, I thought the world would be a different place if you go and build such a computer with all the stuff in it, but it, it didn't happen. Um, so I said, all right, well, we've got to put it on, make it so that it's relevant easy to converse with. Can we make it so that people would ask their computers questions? This is, you know, mid-80s, this wasn't done quite yet. But we we'd started to have the internet. So I said, okay, let's go and use that with this open protocols thing. So we got publishing going, became the World Wide Web. Um, and once that was going, once we got publishing going and the search and all of that, then I could start building the library. So that was 96. So the last 20 years I've been building the library. Um, to try to build sort of this, this idea, archiving the web, books, music, video, um, software. So that's been sort of the vision of the internet that I signed on to to try to help make happen. Um, what's amazing to me is we're just not there yet. That if you look for things online, you might find answers in Wikipedia, you might find you know something thin, but the but the bulk of the materials that we know as people aren't there. So I feel in some sense we've done a cruel trick. We went and convinced people to turn to their computers to answer questions. And they did, and they stopped going to the libraries, but they, we didn't put all the information online. And if it is there, it's behind some paywall or it's you know, so locked up in some database or somebody didn't, you know, doesn't want it accessible or whatever, and I think it's absolutely tragic. So if it's not online, it's as if it doesn't exist. And if we don't put the best we have to offer within reach of all of us and our children, we're gonna get the generation we deserve. It, they're gonna learn from whatever it is they can get a hold of. And what they can get a hold of is really thin, or it's manipulatable. And we saw in this last election of how easy it is to manipulate what's on screens. You can just play with it. You, and and there's the, the backup material is just not even there. If you're a Wikipedian, you're really encouraged to go and have clickable references. But what if it's in a book that's not online? 
Well, one, you probably wouldn't even find it because you can't read it online. And if, you just, if it's not searchable in Google, it's just kind of gone. So I think we, we have a long way to go. It's a long-winded question, uh, answer to a very simple question. We have a long way to go to what? To actually building this, this uh, global brain that we've been hoping for. We're, we're not there yet. Um, we, we've got the computers, we've got the network, we've got people um, really participating. Um, but there's a bunch of pieces missing. Um, it's kind of the, the live encyclopedia that thinks for itself. Um, we're all sort of part of it. Uh, I, I heard a professor say, you know, if you ask one of his students, if your house was burning down, and you could run in and get you know one thing. What would it be? And it's always their phone. That so it's not that the their journals. It's not the photographs under the bed, which was sort of my era. It's their phone. We're connected all the time. I mean, if we didn't have this, I, I think we. Is it starting to make it so that we feel okay not remembering, because we can just find it? Is it? Yes. Are we getting so that we're assuming we're sort of symbiotic? with Wikipedia and Google and the internet? And what is that making us into? It's making us more connected, but what is it making us into? And, and what happens um, if we don't really try to guide this to be the thing that we think it should be? Am I doing, being too grim? What's Wikipedia's answer to this? So Wikipedia, right, is trying to be all answers to all people, right? It's built on a couple of interesting conceits, in my, my opinion, Wikipedia, has this idea that there's a consensus of truth, which is amazing. When I was growing up, there was the Encyclopedia Britannica, and if you're really, really important, you got to write one of those articles. Um, I was really, really privileged. I got to write the article on the internet for the Encyclopedia Britannica. I was like, I've made it, right? That's, a, that's completely cool. Um, but it wasn't consensus, it was authority. And then Wikipedia had this amazing idea of what if we could actually hit a consensus on any particular subject? And it's worked better than all of the sort of standoffish elites ever thought. Um, is that in danger? In, in danger from what? From fracturing. It, well, everything's always in danger, right? But one of the cool things about Wikipedia and consensus is you we will never actually reach consensus it's forever so if we go back to the idea of permanence or impermanence there's this feeling on Wikipedia that the, the finality the knowledge is very important but the knowledge is alive and it requires that interaction with people or with context or with community to, to stay alive and to be relevant to people. It also changes the people who work on it. Say more. Well, we talked about this a little bit before. And um, there was a study that came out in um, Harvard Business Review that talked about people who work on Wikipedia articles and talk on the talk page. They might come in... Um, on very, you know, one side of a political issue or another, very far away from each other. But over time, they 
come closer to the middle, they become more neutral. Is that good or is that bad? <laughs> I don't know. For Wikipedia, it's good. Right. You're trying to make this consensus happen so that there's something neutral on a subject. And it's, I miss the debate, but boy, do I really love Wikipedia. And there's a reason why 340 million people every day uh, go to Wikipedia, according to some random statistic. Um, but it's... Well, the debate is still there. And that's also what's cool about Wikipedia, is that the debate is part of what's recorded. And every article has a history. I don't know if you know these things. Um, there's sort of like, there, there's kind of like a backside of Wikipedia where conversations happen between the people who are making articles and the articles themselves. One starts and then someone changes it and that change is recorded. And then, so what people, when people fight back and forth, that little bit of fight is also recorded. And it's really interesting. So not only if, if this is the internet in impermanence, you guys are completely guilty of, of violating the impermanence thing, right? So not only is the current web page available to everybody, hopefully forever, but every past version and what it is they said about it and all the debates are all sort of there. Yeah, it's actually the much more interesting part, but harder to read. <laughs> hmm. So I, I was trying to think, this, is, this topic is about impermanence. And there's, so, and there's impermanence sort of within the Buddhist tradition. You know, we've got things wash away, great. Um, but then I, I jumped immediately to not remembering, right? not recorded, or recorded and deleted. But that seems different than impermanence in the physical world. But I was trying to think, in the internet world, isn't that just what it is? Isn't it sort of the art of forgetting is what impermanence uh, is um, I guess you, we could lose the whole internet itself and the structures that we've built that would be uh, more structural in terms of going and undermining it but I love that Wikipedia has the debates the history I don't use that very much um, do, you, do you go to see if you're reading something in what cases do you go to find out the discussion behind it do you go for the history or do you go for the talk? The history part is hard to read unless you have written yourself a script or something and you can parse it. But the the talk page is is always there and it's very obviously very easy and people have hilarious conversations and some will come and say, you clearly forgot this very important thing and they'll have a... It's really, it's not funny now as I'm explaining it, but if you check some out, they're actually hilarious. But yes, I do. So the Internet Archive, um, we try to record sort of what else is going on out there. And so um, we started by recording the World Wide Web. Because um, once we got the web kind of going, um, then we wanted to go and build in a memory into it. Um, I think Ted Nelson, who came up with the concept of hypertext, is right. Um, and that the web, or hypertext, should always refer to the past versions of where it came from. Uh, Ted Nelson really says, gosh, you shouldn't have cut and paste, where you take things out of context and move it into a new context. You should always remember where it came from. 
because you're always building things based on where else it has been. And the web was very, very simple. Tim Berners-Lee built a very, very simple system, um, which made it uh, able to spread, but it didn't have things like backlinks. Like, where did this come from? Um, or who else is pointing to it? Um, so it's sort of like every day is a new day in the web. It's, it's, it's a very weird world. Um, so we thought, okay, well, let's at least patch that um, by building the Internet Archive, by taking a snapshot of every web page from every website every two months. Take a snapshot, then a snapshot, snapshot, snapshot. And it's starting to get big. <laughs> um, so, and we now have about 1,000 librarians that are helping basically archive um, specific subject-based collections um, for their own or institutions um, to have, but it also contributes to the Wayback Machine uh, in general. And we collect about a billion web URLs every week, um, or about a half billion pages every week. The total collection size is about, it's almost a 300 billion pages. It's just enormous. Um, and it's, it's just us. It's just all of us going and sharing at a radical level. And what I'm amazed by is how private people are. Um, they, they share such private things um, of what it is they're doing, what they're, because they finally think that it's better for them to share than to not share. That to, um, and I think we should do everything we can to not have people feel betrayed. The, the advice my parents got when they went off to college um, was kind of keep your head down. Be, be careful about what clubs you join, right? This is the McCarthy era. And um, my, my, my sister, um, her, her, her journal had a little lock on it um, to basically to keep it from me, right? So I couldn't read her journal. But I bet my sister at this point, the equivalent of my sister now, would be out on Facebook and just kind of putting it out there for anybody. Um, so we've got this real radical sharing experiment going on where people are living a very exposed um, and wonderful experience, I think, this, this, this World Wide Web and this internet is. I, I don't think we quite understand how treasured it really is um, and, and, and how rare um, this, this kind of experiment and radical sharing um, is. And then there's this question of what do you make permanent? So out of these journals, you know, pe people going and doing this stuff, how much should be permanent, right? I, I, so the Internet Archive just archives this stuff. Should we? Well, so there's some things, you know, are absolutely you want to have permanent news, um, corporate uh, pronouncements of this is and that's, you know, those sorts of things or things that don't get people in trouble. But there's not everything on it should be permanent. Um, so we try to make it easy for people to take things out of the Wayback Machine by emailing us and saying, hey, can I be out of the Wayback Machine? And we get a lot of those. Um, and so that it takes, takes things down uh, as trying to be a balance uh, in the whole thing. But I hope it really doesn't come back to haunt us. Because we've started to see some of the negative parts of big data, of, of what happens when there's information out there and can be used against you. Even in aggregate, where, where none of the little pieces of it seemed particularly bad, but in aggregate, it actually makes, maybe make us feel like we're being watched all the time. 
As you、um, are. As we are. <laughs> so, impermanence or forgetting. When should we? Who should be allowed to do this? I mean, do you give the Internet Archive a pass because we're nonprofit and kind of nice?、Um, if it were the NSA, if it were the Library of Congress, if it were、um, your school, if it were、um, the police,、um, where, where do we draw the line on this? And one of the things I did very early on in building the Internet Archive was to just do all of this really publicly. To just go and say what it is we're doing.、Um, we try to have open doors.、Um, we have an open lunch every Friday. It's as close as we have to a staff meeting, and it's public.、Um, it's not public like in the sense that it's live cast, but it's public in the sense that we invite people in to try to figure out what are we building here and how do we build the best we can do. San Francisco is kind of interesting, I think, in that way, and maybe one of the reasons why Wikipedia moved to San Francisco is. It's a place of balance. When I first moved here, I was actually a、uh, Peter Wallace, who spends a lot of time at CIIS.、Um, he he said that there's kind of the the doers that work in the Silicon Valley and the beers that are up here in San Francisco. Okay, this is 25 years ago. Things have shifted a little bit, but there's this balance of trying to figure out where where should this go, and what's the countervailing force to just Pure capitalism,、um, and interestingly, so much is happening in this area. The, the Googles, Apple, Facebook, Twitter, Wikipedia, Internet Archive, Electronic Frontier Foundation—it's really sort of casting what the digital world may look like for a long time if we do it right. If we do it wrong, it's really our fault.、Um, we, we, we did something wrong. So you you have more power than you think.、Um, you know people that work in all of these places, or you may work in these places. So, how should we build this? What what should be forgotten?、Um, what should be emphasized? How do we merge people, networks, computers, the knowledge that has been written before? What do we get? What's the best we can do by mixing these ingredients、uh, to make our lives better, other people's lives better? Um, I'm hoping that's some of the things that come out of San Francisco in the next ten or twenty years. Because、um, if it's just sort of, if we leave the web as kind of a, I don't know, the biggest surveillance network ever built, or if it sort of feels creepy、um, that we've、um, we've gone too far and, and we sort of retreat back into closed gardens controlled by corporate overlords, I think we will have really missed missed an opportunity. Didn't answer your question. Sorry,、right. the Internet Archive is about thirty petabytes now. It's growing at about twelve to fifteen terabytes a day.、Um, and what makes up that data set? So, how big is that? It's, it's like one of those sort of like, oh well, so those big numbers, lots of zeros. So, what what are we what are we really dealing with here?、Um, the Library of Congress is the largest print library by far. It is about twenty-six to twenty-eight million books. A book is about a megabyte. Twenty-eight million megabytes. It goes mega, giga, tera. Twenty-eight terabytes is would store all of the words in the Library of Congress without compression. That's four hard drives that you can buy at Best Buy for less than a month's rent. 
So the idea of having the Library of Congress on your desk, which was sort of what was talked about in the 70s and 80s, is completely doable. But it's not done. Um, so we, we, we have a scanning center in the Library of Congress, turning pages, but very, very few. We haven't digitized that puppy. Um, it's completely, we could have done it. And they actually, to their credit, kind of pushed back on Google's project because they wanted to put restrictions on the public domain. They said, you don't put restrictions on the public domain. And Google said, we will. And they said, we don't want to work with you. We'll wait for the next one. And so um, it's too bad that they you know, that went down that way. Um, so, but now we get to do, I think, a better job uh, of that. But OK, so let's say uh, a bit is a one or a zero. Right? Claude Shannon said that's the atom of bits, right? It's the, it's the indivisible unit of bits is a one or a zero, one zero. How many bits are in a byte? It, it turns eight, eight bits to a byte. And a byte, it's, it's really confusing because sometimes people talk about megabits and megabytes. And, anyway, so a megabyte is eight bits to a byte, which is characters. A thousand, megabyte, a thousand bytes is called a kilobyte. A thousand kilobytes? Megabyte, thousand megabytes, gigabytes, thousand gigabytes, terabytes, thousand terabytes, petabyte. So we're at about thirty petabytes now. Uh, to give sort of an idea, a channel year of television is ten terabytes. That's kind of you know what the um, the um, I don't know Wikipedia is in the gigabytes. Um, so it is that. a lot of material. And even a small organization like the Internet Archive can scale to that scale. Making it navigable is not easy. Making it last a long time, again, not easy. So some of the problems of making this stuff last is changing the formats from one format to another. Um, so when we started collecting movies, we did it in MPEG-2 format, and we've had to go back through all of our old movies or even the uploads and re-transcode uh, trans them six times. Um, and it takes a long time to sort of have the computers kind of move it forward, but that's the way to keep it still in use. Um, and then there's this, uh, what do you do about software? Because software, you can't just move it forward from, you know, an old IBM PC to your new Mac. How do you, you know, what does that mean? It's basically done by emulation. So you kind of emulate um, these, these old environments on your new computer. And Jason Scott, who works at the archive, had this wacky idea. He said, I, I, I got it. There are these communities out there that have been collecting like old Apple II software, getting it off of floppies and, and putting it in files, more normal files. And there are other group of people that have been trying to make an emulator, you know, co coded in C or something like that that you could download and run, you know, your old Apple II um, uh, in, on your new Macintosh. Um, but it's really hard to do. So it's sort of the land of the specialists or the, you know, guys that live in their basements for long periods of time. Um, so it was really hard. To go, he thought, we, we could bring this out by going and having the emulators cross-compiled into JavaScript. So in a browser, you can go to a web page, download the emulator in JavaScript. It boots in your browser and loads the virtual floppy over the net and runs. 
And these communities in Scripton at, uh, um, I think it's Mozilla Project, this cross-compiling, there's the community that's been doing these emulators and the communities that have been building these, co these collections of old software all work together for a long time and it now works. So you can go to archive.org and relive your 8-bit past. You can play Oregon Trail, you can play all these old video games, um, and you can bring these things uh, back to life. Um, uh, Jason Scott likes to talk about the emularity. So it's, uh, the emularity is when sort of everything is emulated within itself, or th th these machines are sort of waking up, uh, you know, and, and they look at their clock and says, it's 1984. No, it's 2017, and it, they, they're sort of, they're, they were put to sleep, and they're sort of woken back up now, and that level of kind of surreal playing a computer in a computer um, is, is really sort of strange. You can play actually an old IBM PC and launch Netscape version one, and you can actually go and look at current web pages in this world. So, as, as Jason has said, some, somebody looking at the whitehouse.gov web logs just saw that a Netscape 1.0 <laughs> browser came and visited. Um, so we're starting to play with the axis of time. You can, the Wayback Machine was named that by a guy named Z Smith. He was the first engineering manager at, at uh, the Internet Archive. And he said, Bruce, you've been collecting all this stuff. What you need is the Wayback Machine, you know, like Sherman and Peabody and the, on the Rocky and Bullwinkle show, where you turn time to a different time and you walk into it and you can see the web as it was. And it was like, you're absolutely right. We have no idea how to build that. And it was years, uh, several years later, um, in 2001, when we launched the Wayback Machine. And it was really about being able to see it as it was. Sort of kind of like Westworld or something. I mean, sort of, can we go and make it so that you can understand the, com the, the set of links as it was? It was just sort of the simplest Hello World app for this. Um, but it's been amazingly popular. It's used by about 600,000 people every day. The, the whole Internet Archive website is about the 300th most popular website, which we're pretty proud of, except when I'm sitting next to a person from Wikipedia, because um, their, their website's the number five website. People go to that all the time. It is part of their brain. But anyway, the Internet Archive, we still think 300's okay, given that there's hundreds of millions of websites. Um, and so people want old stuff. They like old stuff. Um, they, they aren't just dopes sitting out there. They want to learn. They want to play with things. They, they want a time axis. Um, so I think that there's, there's reason for hope out there. How do we keep up with technological change? Personally, is um, uh, have young friends. Because <laughs> uh, not only is the technology changing, just the way they even look at it is completely different. Um, so that's the only way to, uh, to really sort of uh, do that. Uh, or, organizationally, the Internet Archive has been building this, this uh, set of materials, and we basically copy it um, every three to five years onto the onto next generation machines and disk drives and operating systems. And, and so that's what we've been doing, uh, carrying it forward. And then there's the question of um, uh, having it in multiple places. Because um, if we're trying to build the Library of Alexandria version 2, it's, what is the Library of Alexandria version 1 best known for? 
burning down, right? It's best known for not being here anymore. It was, it was the center of learning for about 500 years. They, they wanted one copy of all the books of all the peoples of the world. And according to some scholars, they got basically there. Um, at least they had the Greeks, the Hittites, the, um, the Jews, the, um, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, and they translated it all into Greek, and they could learn from it, and they came up with amazing things. They knew the earth was round. They knew the, how big the earth was within a few percent. I mean, stunning stuff. Um, they wrote, the uh, Euclid wrote the book of geometry, which is, I've heard, is the second most reprinted book ever. Um, and it's from about the same time period as the other one. And I find the uh, Euclid's really readable. Um, so anyway, it's, uh, there's great things that came about after doing this, but it's gone. And if they'd made another copy and put it in India or China, we'd have the other works of Aristotle, the other plays of Euripides. But we don't. We don't. Um, we have a bunch of things that were copied. There, um, I, I talked to the director of the, the, the new Library of Alexandria. They, they basically built a new one and launched it in 2002, which is fabulous. And he said there are eight pieces of papyrus that are extant today that they believe had been in the great library. And it's basically little scholar's notes that happen to have been copied and then moved off off-site. It's just that gone. And what happened to it wasn't just burned. It wasn't sort of an accidental thing. I highly recommend a book um, called, uh, a, a movie called Agora. So just try to write that down or, or just, it's on Netflix. It's awesome. It was made in Spain and it's about the late Hellenistic period in Alexandria. And it was basically, it was a shift of time that the time of the elites of this whole idea, the Greeks, um, basically wasn't very good to the peasants around them that happened to be this new sect called Christian. Uh, and it was kind of a rebel movement of the poor um, that sort of brought down this not only Alexandria, but the concept of these universities. And we went into a very different time for a thousand years. Um, so let's have more than one copy. Um, let, let's go take care of it. And also, let's not go and isolate ourselves so much that people feel that they have to rebel in such a way that they burn down um, what it is that has been built. Um, I think there's more than lessons of just, you know, have good fire extinguishers in your library. If you have movies or things that you, you're trying to get down a few generations. What do you do? I mean, you can't just print it out, right? Or maybe you can, but it's like, what? And uh, so how do you go and make these things last? And it's really hard. I mean, it's, um, if you tried to actually get to your old backup drives from 10 years ago, do they even mount? I mean, if you didn't like keep them copying forward into your new hard drives, and, and have you ever dealt with a relative that has died, and what do you do with their computer? Um, and what do, you, what do we do now that our, our memories, according to Kodak, or pictures, are on Flickr? Flickr just got bought um, by Verizon, right? It's a, it's a Yahoo property. Um, what happens when that thing goes down? Um, that's got a lot of, so I can generate, it's just riffing on your sort of like, what? And I, I, don't, I don't have a good idea. I think make lots of copies 
um, try to have them be used, um, be kind of public with them um, is one possibility. Maybe store things on the Internet Archive as well as other things. Um, but heck if I know. I've, I've been even failing in my whole family thing um, of just how do you keep this alive. There's another counterforce, which is the lawyers. So in a lot of corporations, uh, including the Internet Archive, we have document retention policies, which really mean document destruction policies, because it's so expensive to have lawsuits where they come and they do these vague queries to just try to drive up the lawyer cost of having everybody go through, expensive people go through all your email. So even though a lot of this could be kept more effectively, often they're not kept on purpose because it's too expensive to keep, not from a storage perspective, but because of the, our law environment um, that we've made something really kind of strange out there. So I, I don't know. I think it's going to be a very lumpy, weird world. Right? There's um, one person said, you know, if it's digital, it's never going to last. Or if it's digital, it's the only thing that's going to last. And you can say exactly the same thing about paper. Paper, it, it'll, it'll never last. It'll just go away. Um, but no, paper's the only thing that'll last. And all four of those things are true. Or, 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 and so that's, I, I don't know. We're in a very weird time. And I think we're also, we've got people in a very anxious mode. You look at almost any fictional movie or whatever, and it's got some AI that's conquering us and, you know, killing us in some, in some, in some way. Um, people are anxious about what this whole digital wave means and what our place is um, as this whole thing goes forward. So there's Fahrenheit 451 has a sort of fanciful end of where we get to go and wander around in the woods and be our favorite book and try to remember it and bring it forward. Um, I think he's wrong. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a great, it's a fanciful um, uh, idea. Um, I think we're... Have you gotten to the point where if something isn't photographed, it didn't exist? Or, or you don't trust a news report that's just written. If it didn't have a video of it happening, you don't really know whether it existed or not, or if they're just lying. It, are we starting to tr distrust people and what they say and their integrity? Um, in such a way that we're really undermining our own sort of authority in, in what's going on. Um, so much is photographed and so much is around that I, I think we're, we're, um, we're externalizing our memories. Um, and if it's not findable, then it sort of has floated, uh, floated away. Um, and we are kind of it, and, and in the sense that we are sort of, we still run this place, yet I think we're not doing a very good job of sort of making sure that people are, are trusted and trustable and brought up to be trusted and trustable. Um, and yeah, I, I think we may be ceding too much at this point um, to these surrogates, to these Facebook pages that represent who we are. Um, that's just not who we are. Um, so the thing I want, there are a couple of, of things in the last decade that have just tickled me so. One is Wikipedia and the other is TED Talks. Um, so TED Talks are, are 20 minute essays, basically, of somebody good at saying something 
just giving it a good shot. And there are thousands and thousands of these uh, videos now out there, and they're watched a million times, at least some of them. And it's very encouraging that people want to hear from people of what they have to say well. But the extreme of that is Wikipedia. There's this, I, can you build the Taj Mahal with an army of ants? Can you take individuals um, and go and trust them to do something great? Um, and it, I guess there is no trust them. I guess, I, man, boy, did I, I should take that back. Will people organically come together to come up with something great? Will they build great cities, not because they're top-down designed, but because they're enabled and empowered? And Wikipedia, I think, is just one of the most positive um, things that we've got going right now towards why we're all going to do just great out of all of this if we uh, keep the tools uh, open and available. And we realize our role is to debate, put it forward, and we have voices that should be heard, that should be recorded, that should be celebrated. One thing I'd love to see more in Wikipedia is actually surfacing the voices. It is hidden, I think, behind some pages. When we get collections, so the web, we just collect, and there's television and things like that. But we're right now we're collecting 78 RPM records because we want to digitize all of them. These are wacky. Uh, so sort of what did the early 20th century sound like? And uh, there's hillbilly music, there's yodeling, there's whistling, there's people playing with spoons, there's, uh, there's old blues, but there's also just, there's marches. I mean, who does marches anymore? And um, so it's all these wonderful things. And these have come to us based on collections that people have selected. And when we put these things up, we're making sure we keep that this was somebody's collection because you might want to look at it for the, who are the other works by that author or that, that performer or that era or whatever. Um, but also you might want to know who else had that and what else did they have next to it? What, what was their point of view in the middle Midwest um, in the 1930s? What were they listening to? What was important to them? What was the record that was worn out? I think that's going to be kind of the cool thing going forward. And I think it's all about people and basically making our technologies recognize people and leaving trails of who it is we are um, and celebrating that. Um, not just dead people of, <laughs> that have left their 78s to us, um, but also um, sort of who we are uh, now. So we're not just sort of anonymized into a, a big AI mush. What do you think about people? Well, I think you are right talking about how it's the discussion and the the contextualizing of information and situations and the things that that people care about and that the things that the things that people save and the things that people show people are about uh, expressing uh, well who they maybe wish to be and uh, a kind of identity and um Historically, knowledge used to only, and the things that were shared were the things from the uh, very rich or knowledgeable people, right? So how, how are we going to keep people engaged in this? I think was sort of how I, sort of what, what about the people part as storage, as transmission, as curators are, what's our role? 
going to be in this world that seems like it's overly dominated by computers. And Wikipedia seems to just bring the best out of people. And tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people um, that are participating and commenting and building it forward. It's really special. I agree. Thank you very much for this evening. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>